Guess what? It's me, Bryce, back with another episode. I know, it's been a while. It's been a minute. Bryce, where have you been this last year? Well, anyway, today's episode is going to be absolutely incredible and it will keep you on the edge of your seat the entire time. Definitely a load of fun to listen to. So today's awesome guest is Matty van Gotham, also known by Matt Van Geo on all these social media platforms. We chat about his incredible African experiences as well as common species in the reptile hobby that are not so common in the wild because Matt is literally out there all the time in the field all around the world looking and finding these incredible reptiles he's a to- he's totally an avid hoper and he's such a nerd he won't mind me saying that because like he is and so am I but nerds are good we need guys like Matt in the world to find these incredible animals and also see how we're keeping them in captivity versus how they are in the wild so maybe we should go to the wild to find out how we should actually look after the species that we keep but also he found a species that's never been recorded in Kenya it's pretty freaking exciting so stay tuned let's get straight into the episode with Matt if you want to find out any more information go to animalsathomenetwork.com you can click the animals everywhere podcast banner and from there you'll find the episode available on Spotify Apple all of your streaming platforms so enjoy okay so you're ready to jump right in i'm ready to jump right in dude you're listening to animals everywhere a podcast that aims to inspire each and every one of you to make an impact and be the change learn more about our natural world explore the lives of those wild and wonderful my name is bryce broom and i'm best known for my infatuation with wildlife and to live a wild life let's jump right in so (laughs) thank you so much for joining me well I joined you, I guess. Yeah, I came yeah. out to your place. <laughs> yeah, thanks for coming through. Thank you for yeah. joining on the podcast. So take us back to the beginning of like where your fascination with all things wildlife began. Wow. So I'm born in Belgium. And then when I was around six years old, we moved to South Africa. And obviously, as coming as foreigners to South Africa, you want to explore. My parents were quite big explorers. So we ended up going to all the game reserves and things around South Africa and around Johannesburg. And always I kind of just went straight for snakes. So my first memory or my first kind of interaction was when we went to um, a little reserve just outside of Malamala. And there was a little rhombic night adder, which I thought was, I think it was a night, an egg eater at the time. Okay. And ended up picking it up and handling it and whatnot. Didn't get bitten. And shortly after that, the guy was like, what are you doing? You shouldn't have picked up that snake. And then that kind of stemmed so my So it like, was an egg eater though? No, it was a night adder. Oh, it was and I thought it was an egg eater, yeah. <laughs> And uh, the guy told me, you're really lucky you didn't get bitten. And at that point, I was like, okay, maybe I should kind of get a field guide and know what I was doing and never stop from there. Wow. It's amazing how it starts with like night adders because I also vividly remember an experience when I was um, down in the south coast and I jumped off of this little like bamboo forest. Uh And as I was jumping down, there was a night adder in between my legs. So I, I like opened my legs so I don't stand on the snake. And then I was like... Wow, this is so cool. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. that's that's where it starts. We we got some nice set dressing over here. here. He's, he's gonna come sit on my lap and you'll be quiet. <laughs> Give us some nice sound effects. Yeah. So it's it's not something that started like because your family is into snakes and reptiles or No, not at all. So my parents were always into a bit of wildlife, more outside adventure kind of stuff. My mom always took us on hikes. 
And uh, whenever there was anything around me, it was even weird. I had like this weird fascination. I was a bit of a kind of creepy scientist when I was a kid. <laughs> and I, had, I used to pin insects and things like that onto pin boards. And I'd find a frog, kind of chloroform the frog, and then dissect it without even being at the point of biology class yet. I had this deep fascination of how things ticked inside somehow. Oh, wow. And, yeah, from then onwards, it was just wherever we went, there, you know, we'd go on a big hike and there'd be a massive rock path underneath the rock and everyone would stand back and kind of, oh, that's amazing. And there's little, little me going, poking on the snake and, like, seeing what's happening and always this, like, deep, deep curiosity and fascination for kind of everything that no one else likes. You know, your scorpions, snakes, reptiles. It's kind of really my base and the thing, my biggest passion in the world. So you also feel like it's the outcasts that yeah. do it for you? Totally. Same, same with me. It's not so much like I don't love all the other animals. I really love everything. No, it's fine. It's cool. Just leave you them might there. Just block the shots. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> Some amazing. You've got to go watch this video on YouTube to see the, the pretty cat yeah, come and yeah, yeah. join us for the podcast. He has a few things to say. Um, like with sharks, spiders, snakes, it's all those animals that. I don't know. I just love everything. So I focus on those animals because I want to sure. share my love also for that. So is mm. it similar for you? Yeah, totally. So, I mean, like you say, it's not to say, I mean, I love, we grew up in the bush, going to the bush all the time, going to the delta and things like that. So wildlife as a general is a big <sighs> passion of mine. But yeah, there's something about snakes. There's also something about like when you go on a game drive, you know, you see all the animals, but there's no interaction. Like with snakes and scorpions and, and, and spiders and things like that, there's some form of interaction where you can kind of really get up close and personal. Yeah. And if you let the snake behave very naturally, like we're doing more and more now with kind of my documentation, is kind of finding these snakes in their natural habitat, getting your camera gear ready, and then following the snake for an hour or two and see how it behaves. And just to be able to kind of naturally interact with snakes and reptiles and things like that is really like my biggest... It's, it's really kind of to educate and show people that these, these animals aren't slimy firstly <laughs> yes aren't super scary aren't always out to get you uh you know you only really negative negative experiences with snakes and these animals that people don't like is always somehow in the back of your mind and you ask them have you ever had a bad experience with a snake they're like no i'm like why are you so scared then because i watched the movie anaconda or snakes or on Jaws, the plane or, yes exactly it's it's strange how that happens like we preconditioned to fear these animals yeah. e even for myself before like working with snakes on a daily basis when i got my first snake i was still like oh is it gonna bite me even though i absolutely loved it i was like is it gonna bite me and you're a little bit worried but then sure. the more in the more you learn, the less you fear. So you, that goes for working with venomous snakes as well. 100%. There's a lot of stigma out there that is not needed. Yeah. Like black mambas and that, oh, it's a dangerous, deadly snake to handle. Yes, it is, but it's not like it depends how you, you work with the animal and that's how totally. it's going to react to totally. you as well. Yeah. So I have a very a saying that I use more and more is like people are always like, oh, mambas can be so aggressive. Cobras can be so aggressive. And yes, in an intense situation, which is where most people encounter snakes in their homes or in a kind of area where it's all of a sudden you're on the snake and then you react badly. If there's an intense situation, you can have an intense snake. Yes. If you have a calm situation, you can have a very calm snake. I've worked with mambas in open fields where you take the mamba out the box. Yes, it's electric at first. You walk alongside it, you use a very basic raking technique or just a hook where you can gently kind of kind of direction the snake and after half an hour the snake realizes you're not out to get it and we've got some amazing natural history documentation of mambas moving very naturally with us not even a couple of meters away from it so 
If the situation is calm, the snakes are calm. If the situation is intense, yes, you're going to have a very defensive and very bitey mamba. Yes, the, the environment dictates totally. the behavior of the animal yeah. in a big way. Mm -hmm. Even how we treat it and everything mm. goes into account with that. Yeah. So fo following a, a snake for that amount of time requires a lot of patience though. But that's epic. Yeah. yeah, you need a hell of a lot of patience. I mean, with a lot of these animals, you know, humans are just as scary, if not more scary for us than they are well, for them. We, these big creatures that are kind of walking around them, and for them to act calmly, it takes them a little bit of time. So often if, if let's say, we have a snake, or let's, say, let's call it a puff adder, we want to form the snake, we take it out, and we put it out in a spot where it's in its natural habitat. It might take 45 minutes for that snake, with you standing nearby it, for it, for it to actually start moving or slithering along or tongue flicking or acting in a natural way where it's not... It's not still reacting from a human stimulus. Oh, my yes. God, there's this big scary thing that's still staring at me. I mustn't move. So it takes a lot of time for these snakes to be able to start kind of reacting naturally and doing their natural thing and maybe even hunting. We've seen snakes after two hours of following a snake all of a sudden go into hunt mode. Meanwhile, you're not even five, ten meters away from the snake. Wow. So like being able to interact peacefully with the snake and understand how it moves and what to do. Okay, cool, you make a sudden move. And it depends on the snake as well. Some snakes are very visual. You know, like mambas and stuff like that, cobras, you make a quick move and straight away it's going to react. Um, other snakes, less so. You know, gaboon, rhinos, they just freeze. Dwarf yes. adders, they just freeze. And then you get too close and it's half, 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 half. And then a little bit too close and then it strike. So, again, there's no, there's no such thing as an aggressive snake, only a defensive one. Yeah. yeah. No. And you just got to read their behavior. Do you think... A lot of what goes on with like the fear of animals and misunderstanding comes from like stems from now we're in the age of information. So we also aren't as patient. So we don't sit around and wait for things. We just want to see it right then and there. Totally. Very much so. I mean, I had an amazing experience now in Kenya. We just got back from Kenya and we're in the Masai Mara and we spotted some of our target species. I mean, cheetah, only 6,000 plus left of them in the wild. And not a lot of people will take that into consideration. You know, you'll see two sleeping brothers uh, under an acacia. And after half an hour, 30 minutes, people are like, check, cheetahs off the list, and they drive on. Well, we didn't drive on. And we waited with those cheetahs for two hours. They stood up eventually, went on their first hunt, didn't succeed, went to the next tree. We sat with them under that tree for another hour and a half in, in, in anticipation and knowing that they will probably move again. And they did, and they repeated this for seven hours. Wow. And we managed to, to film and watch four, four hunt attempts, which was absolutely incredible. But you've got to put those seven hours in and be dead quiet in the vehicle and really respect the animal, keep your distance so that you're not scaring it, you're not intimidating the animal, giving it space to behave naturally, and then obviously get the content and the experience that you want. Yeah, and that just comes from being patient and sure. just being in the present, yeah. not waiting for something. You're just like... What happens, happens, and we will be here to witness that and be ready. But you also can't be like, hey, guys, it's Bryce here. We got this amazing animal. Sorry, I'm moving back from the mic because that's a bit loud. Um, but you, you can't be that ecstatic and that around them when yeah. they're just busy chilling or getting yeah. into hunt mode because yeah. we also don't want to interfere with sure, what sure. they're doing. Yeah, yeah. So you start talking. It's like, hey, guys, we've got some cheetahs over here. <laughs> exactly. That's what you got to do. What the nice thing is with snakes is you don't have to whisper too much. <laughs> <laughs> very, very true. So, so if we're talking of guys, it yeah, works nicely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, often when there's an intense moment there and the snake is doing something, like very often you find the whole team goes very quiet and then there'll be one of the team members be like, 
guys, why are we whispering? <laughs> <laughs> like, it's very chilled. We could talk as I was like, no, it's the moment, you know, that whispering feels like the right thing to do right now. But, but it's true because I think the animals can also pick up on that because we have chemical changes in our bodies also when we become ecstatic and sure. get excited, then our hormone levels increase and decrease. Mm-hmm. So then they can obviously smell that. Us humans don't have that incredible scent, but they do. Yeah. So maybe being quite does in fact help even it does i mean i'm I maybe contradicting myself onto what i just said now but i read or saw something quite recently uh, i think it was with the bushmaster post that actually loud very loud auditory like vibrations can also be picked up by certain species of snake yes so really loud like let's say a honking of a horn or kind of really loud kind of bellowing human beings can actually be picked up by certain species of snakes so they're not entirely deaf yeah it's it's a different frequency yeah. range that they're able to hear because I think they do have internal ears as far yes, as I know. Yes, yeah, it's just closed up and sealed off. So Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's incredible. Can you go on about like your Mara experience in the Maasai Mara? Sure, sure. So, <clears throat> we were, so we arrived in the Mara, very, very excited to obviously see the Great Crossing, the Great Migration. That's one definitely the, on my bucket list. Yeah. It has been for many yeah, years. Yeah, one of the last natural spectacles of the world, one of the last areas with such incredible amounts and diversity of megafauna. I mean, Africa is probably one of the last places that has the amount of megafauna that places like the Mara and Kruger National Park do. But, you know, the Mara is fenceless. You know, it's still animals that are free roaming. And um, we ended up heading down to a crossing. You go to this kind of elevated point, you look for a couple of herds, and you see a herd coming down. And by the time you get to the river, you realize kind of the, the situation is not as pretty as it seems. Um, <clears throat> we came up, and there were probably... On the eastern bank, there were probably around 40, 50 cars. On the other bank, another 50 cars. And previously, you were actually allowed to kind of pre-think, okay, cool, the wildebeest are going to cross here. Maybe there's a couple gullies that where the wildebeest would be able to do it, and then the other points are not possible for the wildebeest. So they need to pick certain routes. And previously, you could park along these routes on the sides and then hope you get lucky and the wildebeest cross past you. And if you didn't, well, unlucky. Now they've changed the rule and you have to keep your distance because they thought you'd block the wildebeest. So now you've got a line of 40 cars lined up here, 30 cars on the other side, and in the, in the middle you've got this herd of wildebeest. And now it takes a lot of courage. It's the most dangerous part of their day or of their lives is doing this Mara crossing. You've got to deal with the water, crocodiles, hippos, fast-flowing water. I mean, it wasn't now fast-flowing, but there's a lot of predators factors that come into play. Predators on the other side. Exactly, predators on the other side. You know, it's really scary for them. So now you add in all these vehicles, and as they get to the precipice, the first, like, wildebeest, cool, I'm going to go down, the, down this little gully, you've got, literally got all these cars going from first to sixth gear within five seconds. And they are speeding towards these wildebeest. And every single time it happened, they were ready to go. The cars arrive and all the wildebeest run away. Why do they speed up though? <clears throat> like, can't you just wait and watch? It's, it's all clientele based, I think. It's all people wanting to have the, most, the best spots and the best view and the best chance for, an, for a photo opportunity. And a lot of the people who are the drivers are Maasai people, the people who... There's also other tour operators, etc. But there's a lot of politics about how and who can operate in the Mara and how they can operate. Maasai have got a lot of jurisdiction in the area, so they can kind of do as they please. And yeah, there's no there's no legislation, there's no restrictions or control or anything uh, to be able to restrict the amount of vehicles. And this was just uh, post COVID, so it's still kind of quiet. So I've heard of times where there's two, three hundred vehicles, and the animals actually can't make the crossing. That's so, sad. So we're interfering. Sad with their natural behaviors in a big way just because we want to witness it. Heavily so. So, I mean, even so, like now you have, let's say, 
Uh, when we followed the Cheetah Brothers, the first three attempted hunts were almost completely by ourselves, maybe one or two vehicles with us. The fourth hunt, by the time they'd done maybe six, seven kilometers, and we'd come back to a main road, and now the people had noticed that we were following Cheetahs, and then again, 30, 40 cars. And there is a little bit of understanding, cool, here are the Cheetahs, here's the herd, you park behind the herd, so that the Cheetahs, there's nothing in between the Cheetahs and the herd. And they started hunting, and again, it's all calm until it's not. Until that cheetah starts to hit sixth gear, there's cars literally pulling in front of the cheetah. There's literally cars that are blocking the way for the wildebeest to escape. So the animals are completely disorientated and actually don't know what to do. So now there's... They don't know which is the predator yeah, also because... They don't like know which cars. way to run, yeah. And the cheetahs then get distracted because of the, che- the wildebeest running in different directions. The cars are running in different directions. So now there's actually um, reports of cheetahs in the Mara that are hunting at night under moonlight which enables them to actually hunt in peace. Otherwise, for these, and at least I'll give it credit, it's only for three months of the year that the crossing is happening. And for the rest of the time, the Mara is a lot more kind of calm where you can get a sighting with two, three vehicles, if not by yourself. But there's not that natural migration that is supposed to happen with the millions of... So so there are, we were were slightly unlucky now. The, The migrations kind of kicked off a month early. So a lot of the wildebeest had already head over, had already crossed the Mara into the Serengeti in Tanzania. I think there are still megahertz. I wouldn't, I'd be lying if I knew the numbers of what, what some of the crossings were in terms of numbers of animals. But from the last year before, um, I heard there, were, there was a crossing that took up to two hours to cross. Wow. So t- maybe call it 20, 30, 40, 50,000 wildebeest crossing in one go and continuously crossing. So I think the spectacle is still there, but it is diminishing year by year. Um, but it's tough to say. I wouldn't, I'm not the expert there. Yeah. Do you think these animals find different routes and different places? Because generally they have the same migration route. Mm. Do you think that is changing now due to us? Yeah, 100%. I mean, when we were driving through into the Mara, uh, there's a lot of farmlands before you get into the Mara Triangle. And um, our guide, Alvera, was busy telling us that before all these like little kind of plots of land where people are farming was completely open. Now there's a hell of a lot of small fences that have gone up. So they're actually like the wildlife corridors that used to be actually not even a corridor, was just open, now really restricting the animals to tiny little avenues to be able to um, cross from area to area. So there's a lot less um, kind of ability for animals to do their natural migration. They're getting a lot more stuck in these certain areas, and it's making it difficult for predators, prey, and everything to be able to move around more naturally. Same with the elephants as well. Because they don't have the massive natural migration routes now because it's been fenced up farmland that's Mm. hectic same with ellie's big problem with elephants they can't migrate from area to area that's why they're desertifying certain areas like botswana at the moment is because there's no natural migratory routes anymore they used to go up onto the uh, baselands of of mount kilimanjaro and then come back down and i mean elephants used to have super um very deep structured like movements in terms of like their natural migration and none of it is possible anymore. So they really get stuck in certain areas and then they turn it into a desert without their own, with their own doing and then population will crash. It happened in Savo as well, where elephants were just dying naturally because of overpopulation. Because they can't like migrate, so then they can't eat different foods, giving the plants time yeah. to grow, so then they decimate everything yeah. and then yeah. they end up dying because of that. And that's our doing sure. without us even knowing it yeah. because of just destroying it. Mm-hmm. Totally. That's... It's insane. Mm. Like, I, I remember reading somewhere that they would actually go up from 
what's it, Kenya to Angola to the Delta, all the way even into KZN in South Africa yeah. and have a huge mi- migration route. And now that's not possible whatsoever. No. I know Kruger is busy working on ripping out their fences between Zimbabwe and uh, Mozambique. Yeah. But it, it, it's, it's a weird situation because now you're taking the fences down. The fences were helping with the anti-poaching. So now you're opening it up to poaching more, but you're allowing the natural cycle of wildlife. So it's like a, it's a very complicated sure. situation. Yeah, it's a big catch-22. And then you've got different countries that operate in different ways. You know, that's why the Ailes and Bots have stayed in Bots. Yes. They know if they leave and go to Zim, they're going to get shot at. They know if they go south, it's not going to work because it's South Africa. We overdeveloped. We, I mean, our only natural areas are fenced areas. Yes. The rest are primarily farmlands and agricultural lands where you're also going to get pestered and annoyed. Exactly. Uh, and in Angola, there's all the landmines and bombs and stuff like and, that. And ancestrally were hunted as well. And then in Mozambique, I mean, if you've got a Gorongosa uh, on, on a game drive and the guides and the people operating they see elephants, they go the other direction. You don't go towards elephants in Gorongosa because of during the Civil War, they were hunted and, and shot at so profusely. These animals have a deep-seated genetic fear of humans in, in Mozambique. If you go to Botswana, you can walk five meters from an Ellie chilled. Ian Karma's reign, you know, poachers was shot on sight. There was no, no, no two ways around it. Mozambique, it's a fine, you, know, you get slapped in jail or whatever for maybe a week and then you're out again. So there's, you know, opening fences to different areas with different legislation and different things like that. You'd think the animals would start moving naturally, but they smell that border. They, they cross over into Zim and they know exactly what's happening. Yes. Elephants are very smart animals. That's why they've hung out in Botswana as long as they have. I mean, Botswana has over 100,000 plus elephants yes. just in Botswana. And that, that's the whole thing why they're now allowing the legal hunting of elephants because it's actually a good thing because otherwise the elephants will destroy the total ecosystem and many other species will die off because of it. So it's, as you said, it's a catch-22. It is a big catch-22. And again, you know, you say good thing, but it's like, unfortunately, you've got in government, you've got certain priorities. You know, people are like human health resources, da-da-da, economy, and then environment comes last. Yeah. If we were to flip that whole thing and put the environment first, so many things would kind of cascade naturally down. Yes. Um, why can't we repopulate areas where elephants were previously extinct? Because it's too expensive. But people are willing to go to flipping Mars and pay for ridiculous space shuttles to go do something that we don't need right now. We need to save Mother Earth. We need yes. to protect this planet. Well, we, we need to fix the problems here yeah. and not move to a different planet yeah. because if you move there, the same issues are going to happen and on Earth, we're blessed with the best ecosystem. I mean, yeah. we don't have to create a new life. You yeah. don't have to all genetically modify all these different species to be able to survive on, on another a different planet. planet. Yeah. And if we go there, we're, not, we're no longer human beings with the amount of like, radiation we'd go through. We, we would become aliens by living up there anyway. So we wouldn't be Earth, Earth yeah. people anymore. <laughs> don't know about you, but I ain't leaving Earth. I'm, no, they, sticking I'm to happy with all the people there that can the leave, and I'll just stick back here and enjoy where we are right now. <laughs> I, I, I hear you. And then we can work towards saving the planet because yeah. the planet is actually, it's very good at healing itself. That's it. But we got to let it do that. And all it takes is time. Yeah. But time is money. Yeah. And that that's the big issue. Yeah. Money is a big thing. Yeah. Logging, deforestation, people always talking about, you know, poaching and anti-poaching and a single species. But 
in terms of biodiversity loss, it's chopping down the rainforest, it's trawling what we're doing in the oceans. I mean, yeah. I've stopped eating fish recently after watching that documentary yes, on Netflix. Yes, on Netflix. That was an amazing... I mean, I knew it. I already had it in the back of my mind. And all we need to do, like you said, is if we can allocate 30% as MPAs, area, marine protected areas where people on a lot of fish go in and do anything, zero impact, yes. we would be able to... It's a natural fish farm. It's the best fish farm you have in the world. Exactly. Is the ocean itself. So if, if we leave these massive pockets alone, you know, the competition will get so high that the little guys will slowly have to swim out because the, the, the big territorial fish will chase them out. And we catch that off catch. So you're never crushing core populations. Yes. And if we can get to that point where we can literally allocate, like Steve, that's why Australia is doing so well in terms of protecting. Steve Irwin and the family owns a massive percentage of Australia that has been completely allocated to wildlife preserves. And we need more and more of that on this planet. More and more and more. Just if, you're, if you've got lots of money, just buy pockets of land just that exactly. can be left alone. Th that's the thing. And then if we do it right, we can actually feed off of that land and live off the land too. Because that's what we're made to do. Not this agriculture that's mass production of everything because that's bad for the environment. You're killing all the ecology off, all the microorganisms. You're destroying the soil, the everything just by the way we farm if we implement like the permaculture ways yep. agroforestry exactly yep. that L let nature be nature yep. and we f like reap the fruit of that totally so i mean when i was on an expedition um actually pre-covid just before covid i was in an expedition in sumatra north sumatra with oic Or orangutan information center and at a lush forest which is the, the tour operator who took us out there and it was all about permaculture and agroforestry and people giving people a means to, you know, if you're poor, you just take what you've got available to be able to make money, which is the palm oil industry. So people buy little pieces of land and they plant palm oil. And after a few years, that land is dead, the palm oil forest dies, and then you've got your, your land is completely arid and barren. You can't grow anything. Now, what they're doing is they're buying up pieces of land alongside the Lucia ecosystem. Now, it's completely government-owned. And people are not scared to go into the forest and rape and pillage and poach and do what they need to do. So they're buying off pieces of land that's private. And in that private section, you're planting durian and you're planting um, very high quality fruits. I'm forgetting the other species. But they're doing agroforestry principles where it's three, four indigenous plants, local forest plants. And then you plant a banana tree and then another three, four trees and then a durian and then some drag fruit. And then you go into the forest and that tree is going to give you for the next three, four hundred years is going to continuously give you fruit. And you go into the forest, you're collecting what you need, but then you're also providing the animals like orangutans, etc., who will take 15, 20% of your fruit. But you only need so much. Exactly. And you've got then a long-term basis of food coming from your 100 jackfruit, your 100 durian trees, your granadilla, instead of your palm oil plantation, which is going to last you five years, and then that land is completely dead for the next 10 Yes, because it's draining everything Completely. in it. Completely. And if you, if you let nature be nature, the leaves fall. It gives nutrients mm -hmm. back to the earth. Yeah. The little microfauna break it up and reuse it. The mycelium, like everything works together. It's such a perfect yeah. ecosystem that we just got to learn how to be a part of it and not be apart from it. Yeah. And just, I think... Uh, how how we live life has got to change in a big way. Totally. That instant generation of let's get this here and now. Yeah. It's not good. No, it's like not. getting mangoes in flipping 
winter. Yeah. It's not meant to be like that. Totally. You, you don't change nature. Just yeah. let it set let it its be. course. Yeah. So it's eating local again. It's like I have this conversation quite often with, you know, your extreme vegans and vegetarians. And when I was living in London, if I go to the grocery store and I want to make a salad with 10 ingredients, tomatoes are from Morocco, mealies from South Africa, avocados from Mexico. So you go to 10 countries in your salad, pretty much. Yeah. If I bought some potatoes and a pig that was killed down in Sussex, that's more vegan. That's more carbon free than me eating my salad with 10 ingredients that has been packaged in plastic, shipped around the world with 50% waste. So what's, you know, there's, there's a big catch in terms of, oh, are we going to move away from milk industry? I'm not condoning the milk industry because it's, again, anything, like you said, big monoculture, anything that's mass-produced, stay away from it. If you can eat local, there's nothing wrong with eating meat yes. as long as it's locally sourced. That's why in South Africa we have the saying, local is lacquer. Yeah. Lacquer means there like we go. good, great. Yeah. Or, I, I don't <laughs> yeah, know how yeah. to explain it yeah, to someone lacquer who's is not. Good. Yeah, lacquer is like it's... Yeah, you, you're benefiting. Everyone benefits. It's kind yes. of a more sustainable, holistic kind of approach. And and that's the thing. Like, there's nothing wrong with being vegan and that. No, but, not at all. But if you being vegan because you love animals and you feel like eating meat is actually destroying the planet, no. Generally speaking, you're destroying the planet more by consuming plants, plant-based foods just because of the way we farm and everything like yeah. that it's not sustainable whatsoever mm -hmm. it's destroying other things you're destroying more wildlife by eating by not eating animals yeah yeah so if you were to be able to like in south africa obviously it's it's not the perfect system but we have a lot of if everything was government run we would have no wildlife but because of the privatized industry of wildlife and game breeders we have often an excess of wildlife in these fenced-off areas, and they need a certain amount of culling a year. Yes. These animals run around completely free, are eating what they want to eat up until the moment that they get shot. Yes. And if you can then source one of those impala a year and you freeze the meat, that is completely vegan in my eyes as opposed to Im importing almond milk, importing you know Mexican cartel mafia avocados. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's really looking at the choices you make in terms of how you're purchasing and what you're purchasing. Yes. Um, I think we can make big changes by just eating what's available. Like you say, you know, if it's not mango season, it's not mango season. You don't get mangoes. Simple. Exactly. It's, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I want my mango. <laughs> and it's shipped in all the way from Indonesia or wherever it's shipped in from. And it's coming again from a massive mango plantation where there's no under shrubbery. So it's all kind of pesticides and insecticides and da 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 and over hormonized and gmo food and i mean if you look at what's happening with india it's shocking you know what monsanto has done with their seed in india where cool for three four years they've got the biggest crops in the fourth year their land is dead and what do you do then yeah <laughs> it's it's very short-sighted there's no long-term plan in terms of people and a lot of governments are never looking long-term exactly it's, it's about the biggest buck yeah. now yeah. that you can make it's that instant and yeah. instantaneous generation again like yeah. also we, we don't need to eat different things every day yes you can have chicken today you finish that chicken or whatever you slaughter a cow or a wildebeest you eat that till it's finished you don't totally have different things yeah. all the time just yeah, yeah. because you feel like it yeah. you eat the fruit of the season 100 type of thing yeah, yeah. eating local Local is lacquer. Local is lacquer. <laughs> there we go. There that, we go. That's the way to do it. Yeah. I actually like how we've diverged from like the yeah. whole reptile topics. <laughs> totally. Because this is something that's it's actually... It's super pertinent. It's very yeah. important. Yeah. It's very, very important. Like yeah. trawlers, how 
we got to stop that altogether because line fishing is way better for the environment. I'm not saying stop eating fish completely, yeah. but think of how you're doing it. And all those brands that say, oh, no, we are eco-friendly, sustainable or whatever – there's a lot more behind that than what meets the eye. Totally. I mean, the green facing is a big business, hey? Add a vegan slap, add a vegan sticker or ethically sourced sticker and people are willing to pay three, four times the amount and people have realized that. So that's like farm bread or farm whatever. It's, it's all it's, rubbish. It's all about, it's a money-making yeah. scheme. Yeah. A lot of it's not actually about caring for the environment yeah. and the world we live it on. Yeah. Mm. It's, it's sad. Yeah, it's very sad. So now let's diverge back to <laughs> reptiles again. Does keeping reptiles in captivity impact the wild in a negative or positive way? Wow, it's a very complex and convoluted kind con of like Yeah, we can go on, on just this topic alone. So we'll try, I'll try my best not to ruffle any feathers and try be kind of give what I think of the situation. Obviously, keeping animals in captivity has its benefits to a degree. But I think prior to kind of this whole change in kind of consciousness where we're going and people are more wanting to go out and experience things in the wild, before it was literally cool, I want to keep as many snakes as I can. Um, yes, it's going to benefit in terms of people are saying, oh, but if they're endangered in the wild, if I bring them into captivity, I'm going to be able to save that species at a later stage rubbish it's never going to happen because you can't really reintroduce it back into the wild if there's no wild left if there's no wild left firstly and then why are we putting our efforts in the in the thought okay cool let's collect all the wild ones and then put money and resources into a captive breeding project instead of allocating all that energy to in the wild cool let's find that pocket of wildlife or find that patch of forest and try and protect it go to these poachers and people who are purchasing them from the wild for the captive trade and turn them into guys who are going to do snake safaris. We've had plenty of experiences with this in Uganda. Who People who were previously poachers are now actually taking people out on snake safaris and realizing that if they keep poaching this area, there's going to be no snakes left. And if they now are literally, cool, I've got a pair of snakes, they keep them in an enclosure and they breed, let's say, some gaboons and rhino vipers, 70% of them they put back into the wild and the 25 they, they send over to, to Europe and America. Yeah, that's and, exactly what I want to do because... Uh, yeah, and then to be able to... So I used to be just about keeping snakes because I wanted to keep the snake and I want to look at the snake. And now it's more really... Because we're never going to stop the pet trade. The pet trade is massive. Yes. Um, there's an incredible documentary on water bear called Not a Pet. I mean, out of all the exotics in the world, I think 60% of the exotics is amphibians and reptiles. Just because the mass... It's easy, it's easy to keep and yeah. uh, people like the whole like exoticness of it all. And once the country, let's say now we've got protected species in a country, once they leave that country and they arrive in Europe, it's open game. There's no legislation around who you can sell to, where you can ship the animal to, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of them end up with people who cannot even care for them. So yep. then those animals die off and yep. they keep importing more yep. which just keeps feeding the problem it's a big big problem so the whole it's like how did the borneo earless monitors get into the captive trade if there were never any permits or anything allowed for, for for removing them from the wild in indonesia same with what fiji banded yeah. iguanas yeah. and the bolians yeah. python i yeah. believe and then people will go on and say oh it's farm bread 
It's like this now. It's like the whole eco like vegan stamp, you know. It's like someone who owns a piece of land in the rainforest and they found the snake on his thing, so that's considered farm bred. It's a wild animal that he just collected from his property, and it's very destructive. What's happening in terms of the captive population? The, I mean, it's all interlinked from like the drug cartels to prostitution to the legal wildlife trade, and the movement of the amount of animals. It's it's scary. People are on, people are always thinking in the captive. Oh, there's still plenty of gaboons and rhinos in the wild. I'm like, have you been? Yeah. Have you been to these rainforests in in Uganda? Have you been to the rainforests in Kenya? These are tiny fragmented pockets, and you look for days. When I mean days, we're in herb crews of four or five people with two local guides who know the area intimately, and you're lucky to find one or two. So these animals are really under big, big, big pressure. And unfortunately, there's also cool. I want these snakes, and a lot of people are very willing to buy captive bred snakes, even captive bred bred. So the CBB, you yeah. Know? F2 um, or whatever. Exactly. But now there's also a big community in Czech Republic. Czech Republic has a big problem. It's one of the hubs where a lot of... Um, yeah, I think it's the smuggling the hub. The smuggling hub from Africa into Europe. Yeah. And a lot of keepers there, they don't actually want captive bred. They would way rather, they want wild blood, wild genetics. Because the people that are breeding in captivity are breeding the daughter to the father to the son, yeah. back and forth, yeah. messing up the bloodlines, giving you funny-looking animals, yeah. and weak genetics. Yeah. So these guys are very willing to buy 10 individual wild-caught, fully knowing that six are going to die and four will survive. And this trade will continue going on and on and on unless we change people's mind on the ground, these guys that are collecting the snakes, and let them know that if they... I mean, there's snake safaris happening all around the world now. There's big companies taking people all around the world, photographic safaris for snakes. There's somehow this weird increase in energy and vibe around snakes and reptiles around the world in a good way and i believe why keep snakes captively nowadays if you enjoy them that much why not save up and go and see them in the wild yes why not give these people and poachers an avenue where if we have enough people arrive and be like dude i will pay you 500 dollars for the next week to go see snakes in the wild that guy will stop poaching immediately. He doesn't want to be poaching. Yeah, because the wild-caught animals, it takes them days and days to find because the terrain's not easy to find. And the longer you do it, the less animals yeah. that are out there to yeah. actually find. Yeah. Yeah. And now, I don't know if you've ever seen those price lists or whatever of how much the animals sell for, but like a wild bull python is like $5, yeah. uh, $2. They're still collecting bull pythons from the wild. There's captive populations pretty much, I would say, in every country in the world bar Antarctica. Yes. There's ball pythons and people breeding ball pythons. Why do people still need to, you know, it's one of the hardest snakes to find in the wild in terms of a ball, in terms of a python in Africa. It's one of the hardest in the world. Wow. You can't find them. Yeah, it's like the little tiny pockets of them. Yeah, and it's the most common snake in captivity, and yet people still want to get them from the wild. That's the thing. There's no need anymore because. Literally, with ball pythons, we have enough, enough genetic diversity. But then again, it's a lot of the way we are keeping them needs to change drastically and soon because we are destroying things. You cannot breed siblings and stuff together for generation after generation after generation. Yeah. Yes, with reptiles, it's not as bad as the inbreeding with mammals, sure. but that goes to an extent. Sure. We don't need to breed this to this to get a fancy morph quicker than before or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or bring in wild blood because maybe I can get a wild type morph from that. Sure. No, just leave them there. Let yeah. them 
do what they were meant to do in the yeah, wild and yeah. go see them there. Because mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but when I see snakes in the wild, it's nothing it's, better. Oh, it's it's amazing. It's nothing better. And that's why I love keeping also South African species sure. because I can see them in the wild. Sure. I can recreate that habitat or try to the best mm-hmm. of my ability and then also try and get that pressure from collecting them in the wild yeah. off yes some species may be abundant in the wild that doesn't mean we should take them out yeah 100 percent. i mean a species is only abundant until the demand booms mm. there's like bolians pythons now it's like the new hot holy grail of pythons yeah i saw a pair being sold now for twenty two thousand dollars it's like a couple of years ago, they were selling for maybe three, $4,000. Now, because it's become this whole rainbow serpent, it's got this big alert to it. Now you can imagine if people are willing to pay $22,000 for a pair of snakes and that word gets to local catches in Indonesia. Yeah, yeah that can make it can a decimate huge... a population very, very quickly. So, because the reality is people do need money to survive. Yeah. And if they see that, they're like, okay, that's easier that's opportunity. than... It's probably more than... A full year or two years worth of wages yep. by just finding one snake. Yep. Yeah, so yeah. what are you going to do to feed your family? Yep. I would also do that. Hundred percent. That's why we got to change the way. Yeah. And that's again what it brings you back to my to your question initially is like what's the captive population or what's the captive breeding that's going to help is is stem the demand because people will take the easier route if there are captive breeds available people will go that route and then the wild populations can be saved to a degree you know if there's if there's still some new blood that needs to be brought in every once in a while that's going to be your bigger breeders and let's say five ten individuals are leaving the wild from let's say Berlin's pythons for example but there's already 15 20 captive breeders that are managing to breed them regularly then you only need to bring in every couple of years some fresh blood and not be bringing in to actually supply the demand of all the captive babies that people are buying. Exactly. And know where those animals are caught. Yeah. So then you can release, per se, 70% of what you've bred in captivity too. Yeah. Because then you can also take out for generations 200, 300 years in the future because the different bloodlines are breeding with each other, but yeah. also not mixing and putting them in the wrong locality, you know, when they, where they come from. Sure. So you release them where their parents were caught or whatever. Do so something I, like that. I don't think that that would ever really be possible unless you're on the ground. Like you said, you know, if these animals are leaving to Europe and leaving to America, you're never going to be able to know who bred what and how and how he, what he did with those animals. Mm. So I think if there's always going to be a system in place where... Bolian's pythons in Indonesia, rhino vipers and gaboons in Uganda. If you have those guys that are registered and legally allowed to export X amount a year, then those guys in those farms are going to breed them. 70% of the hatchlings go straight back into the wild. There's no contamination. They were raised in that area, in that country, and they can be going straight back. And that 30% is sub-supplying the America and the pet trade with fresh blood. That that's actually a much better idea so, than because the people. The captives, I mean, the, the legislation and the and the red tape to move a snake to be able to get it from America back into Indonesia, yeah. back to the locality. The stress on the animal already is going to be extreme. Then the pathogens and all the different things that yeah, you know, introducing come into play. new things into the wild. That's so if if there's true. ever going to be a system in place for it, it'll be the guys on the ground who've got legal paperwork. Like in Uganda, there are collectors that are legally allowed to. Again, it's like the government allows them. In my eyes, it's not a beneficial thing because they've been given free license. 
Um, but there are legal routes to go around it. Yes. And if those guys are properly licensed and are properly educated around the fact that, cool, you guys have these big enclosures, 70% or even say, let's say 50% go back to the wild. I mean, a gaboon can have 50, 60 babies. So if you're releasing 50% back to the wild and the rest goes to the pet trade and you're constantly using one parent or a couple parent groups that you re-release after a couple of years and then you catch another captive pair, so you're changing the bloodlines, I think that would be the best route to be able to supply the pet trade, which is never going to stop. We're never going to stop people keeping animals, unfortunately. But then again, there is a benefit to us humans as well as the wildlife for keeping. Like, yes. I know lots of people that their animals actually literally give them life. Otherwise, yeah. without them, they would be suffer from severe depression, yeah. many other things, even physical ailments yeah. they help with. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. So yeah, It's a peaceful thing. It's something that's beautiful. You know? it's, and again, it also having snakes in captivity and doing snake shows, that's what stems intrigue and love. You know, being able to touch a snake for the first time is not going to be in the wild. Yeah, know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to be with someone like me or you who's, you come home and like, oh, do you like snakes? Oh, I'm a bit scared. Oh, don't be scared. Come with me in my snake room. First five, ten minutes, Oaks, people are like on edge. Okay, I'm going to take a snake out. Just be calm. And after half an hour, an hour, these people's ridiculous inert fears completely dissipate. And all of a sudden, they're touching a snake. I had a guy I went to school with, um, very, very intriguingly, very heavily Zulu. His whole family had never even touched a snake. It's the biggest taboo. He got to the point where he got comfortable enough with me that he was touching the snake, eventually holding the snake. And he's like, you know what? I really I want to kiss the snake. And so I held the snake's head and I, I like move over the body. He's like, no, I want to kiss the snake on the head. As like this very like ceremonious kind of like overcoming his fear. And after he kissed the snake, it was this huge elation. And he went back to his family and spoke to his family about this incredible experience he had that none of his family had ever experienced wow. because of this innate, inert fear that most people have of snakes. And it's normal. I mean, back in the day, you know, if you look at how we evolved naturally, you know, snakes back in the day, if you got bit by any of these snakes before medical advancements arrived, you were dead. Yes. So there is a natural, normal fear of this. Add a little bit of religion into the spice, you know, with Adam and Eve and the snake being evil. Yes. And then some bad movies. And, and then, the then you have one, of the, biggest, one of the biggest phobias in the world is snakes and spiders. People are petrified of them, but it doesn't take long, you know, before you get a little bit of knowledge and you can speak to a few people. I mean, even locals, we go for mamba calls, they're running the other direction. An hour later, they're willing to stand there next to you, slowly touch the snake, squeeze a little bit. You know, they're, oh, it's not slimy. You're like, no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> Snakes aren't slimy creatures, yes. you know. So it's a lot about education and knowledge. And, you know, fear only exists in the absence of knowledge. Oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's why the more you know, the less you fear. You've got to be up close and be personal with it to see oh, it's not what I thought it was. It's not what people have said because there are so many myths and stories can get bent and twisted so easily and so quickly. Oh, I, I know somebody who was chased by this and then the story keeps changing and evolving to become something it was not at all because everybody knows somebody who knows somebody that's had a bad story, experience. Story, story, story. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, it's like that, Game you play as kid. The words never. The come 30, 30 centimeter snake turns into a three meter one. The color changed, the head shape changed, everything's changed. And at the end, it's like, yeah, oh, it was a four meter anaconda in Johannesburg. You're like, really? <laughs> come <laughs> exactly. on. Exactly. I've yeah. had that so often. It's, yeah. it's not even funny, but 
it is funny for us, sure. but then again, you, we can't laugh at that no, because we got to educate and show. Yeah. No, it's not actually like that. It's like yeah. this and give that up close experience. That's sure. why I love my ball pythons. They, they've gotten so many people over the fear of snakes yeah. who are like, I won't even come in your house now because there's, there's a snake. What is it going to do to you? Yeah. Just check. Yeah. It's, they incredible animals. They're yeah. not going to do anything yeah. to you. Does your camera keep rolling? Yeah, okay. it's, it's probably Mine's got a 28 cutoff point. 28 minutes, it stops. No, so this goes to like th- 30 minutes and then it just doesn't oh, It will tick clock. over. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. Cool. But they all stitch together cool. perfectly. Perfect. So <clears throat> what are some of the difficulties herping and finding reptiles out in the wild? Sure. I mean, it's again... So finding, finding snakes in the wild is not an easy task. Oh, again, it's like... No. People think, you know, snakes are everywhere. And I can assure you, we go looking for them for hours and hours and hours, <laughs> and you cannot find a snake. Days. Yeah, days even. Oh. And it depends on the habitat and the environment and certain cues, but yeah, you really need to be in tune to find snakes. Um, certain species like your lapids, your group of lapids, cobras, mambas, things like that, out there actually actively herping, they're too in tune. They exactly. hear your vibrations, that snake's on the path. You, it's, it's done its job wrong if it gets seen. Yeah. So you're very lucky to go out herping and actually herp a mamba, herp a cobra, things like that. Uh, once you go into like desert environments, searching for your dwarf adders, it becomes a little bit easier. You know, you can get Even lucky. though it's a rarer snake, yeah. it's easier to find just yes. because of certain the behavior factors. of the animal. Yeah, and because they're more, they don't move a lot, they're isolated to certain ridge lines. You can really kind of isolate their habitat. Google Maps is your biggest friend. <laughs> oh, yes. You look around and you search and you can see, okay, there's a little rock belt there, it's east facing, da 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 da, and then you search those areas. And you flip enough rocks and you flip enough things and you eventually find something. Yeah. But, you know, it, it's really not easy. Rainforests are a really tough place to work in. Tell me about uh, it. I mean, you're sludging through. There's lots of mud. A lot of the snakes are either two, three meters in the canopy. They look like the canopy. Yes. They look and like there's leaves. nothing to flip. Yeah. It's a really tough environment to, to herp in the rainforests. Um, and it's also tough to get through places. You know, I like, I love the rainforest, but I also very much like, like a Northern Cape kind of habitat. Yeah vast openness you can see everywhere you want to go and you can kind of easily you can easily operate there but yeah finding snakes is not easy we just did a kenya trip now uh for three and a half weeks of that was probably three weeks of active herping and we found 16 species of snake i think 20 individuals in total so that's still decent going i mean in african standards it's also you got to remember african standards there's a lot less diversity in terms of Africa because of the shrinkage of uh, the Congo Basin and the rainforest. Yeah. It kept shrinking over millennia, it shrunk and then got bigger again, shrunk and got bigger. So there's a lot less diversity and a lot less um, density. If you go into your tropics, Costa Rica and Indonesia, Thailand, you, you don't know what to do with yourself. There's literally like frog there, then there's another snake, and then there's that's standing there, and you, you don't know what to film and where to stop. So it depends a lot where you're going in different areas, like Costa Rica and a lot of those areas have got very well-established herping tours because they can actually convert or confirm you can we will see, see stuff. We will see stuff. If you go out herping for rarer stuff here in Africa, I mean, I did a seven-day trip looking for Albanica, and I think we walked over in seven days just under four, 500 kilometers walking. That's insane. And only on the last day did we end up getting some snakes. Wow. Yeah. So it's, I mean, but that's the, that's, it's like the tropics, like the, the catch 22. You go in the tropics and you see a snake around every corner, every like couple of hours. 
the thrill is there. But when you do that four-day search for a species of snake and then you finally pop it, there's nothing better. There's nothing better. You've put her in those hours, you've grinded out, so then you finally find the snakes, you find her pathologist dancing very hard in the field. <laughs> yeah, that's where <laughs> the, the saying lifer comes from. Yeah, yeah. That's a lifer yeah, right there. Yeah, 100%. I, I know it's like searching for our East African gaboons, and that's not even full tropics. Every year I go for seven days, every day out there, day in, day out, searching. Nothing. It's been five years, so like sure. five total weeks out there nothing not found one but then again some of your most avid herpers and that have never found it it's you also got to kind of get lucky and you it's do. not an easy environment because you, you can't do. just flip a rock and find stuff they aren't really rocks it's leaves it's bushes it's yeah, yeah you see a lot of other cool stuff so it's it's still worth it because you're having a great time in the beautiful yeah. environment yeah but now you're also talking about a snake that's heavily poached so a yeah. lot of these snakes it's a very strange habitat as well for gaboons, considering where you find them all the way up into Uganda and uh, slightly on the coast in Tanzania, up into the Usambaras, and then a little patch in Kakamega Forest in Kenya, which is the most easterly pocket of like primary rainforest. And you look at the, like our St. Lucia, very coastal estuary area, and you've got these gaboons living in that area. Yeah. I mean, coastal thicket is not an easy place to work in. No, it's, it's really not. hectic. We were looking for mambas now in, um, in Watamu up in Kenya. I think we had six days looking for mambas, green mambas. It's gnarly, man. Like shirts torn, scratches everywhere. You're pushing through stuff to be able to get to the prime habitat. And yeah, I think six days, no mamba, unfortunately. And that's the thing. You, you're so surrounded by bush that you can't see anything. Yeah. You're more it's focused like, on getting through the bush than actually having time to look around and see what's around you. Yeah. And yeah. if you do see something, because there's like rainforest thicket everywhere you're probably not going to catch it because no. they, those animals, they move. that's their environment. Yeah, they yeah. can dart through it yeah. like lightning. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we had one guy, a ferry from Bioken. If you guys are ever in Kenya, please do hit up Bioken. They're absolutely incredible. Do snake safaris. And this man is a jungle ninja. I swear, he, he asked me, I asked him a few times, so ferry, you see that tree like three, four meters up, big mango tree? It's like, if you see a mamba there, you're going to catch it. No problem. <laughs> these guys I mean he was since he was a little boy around six, seven, eight years old his dad was working at the snake farm yeah uh, with Royan still at the time okay because he passed away a few he, he passed years away ago. a few years ago yeah unfortunately um, and he was a little boy and his dad was working at the farm and he used to come to the snake farm board as a little kid six, seven years old and from that moment onwards he's been working at Biken as a snake rescuer and snake safari guide for the last 20 years wow I mean the guy is it's something, about, it's something about people who've worked with snakes in the field their whole lives that they just look at something and they see it instantly. It's like there's mamba up there. You're like, what? Yeah. Uh, you look for a little while. He e- sees it straight away. Even for someone who's been... Yeah, like, even for guys, me, I've been herping now for... I mean, I didn't know I was herping until herping became a thing for me. Yeah, you were just looking for snakes. So I, was at, I went to my class and at my class there was, um, there was actually a snake community. We had a snake room. Okay. And in second year, by second year, I was already managing the snake room. And I was, out, I was the kid out rescuing because all the uh, teachers were living on the, on the property. And they had colbins where they keep your wood in there for the winter because winter gets really cold. Well, all the snakes, every winter there were snakes in there. From puff adders, olive house snakes, red-lipped heralds, night adders. Uh, we had um, green bush or spotted bush snakes. We had the Natal Eastern green snakes, runcols. I mean, I was rescuing at least minimum of like maybe 50, 60 snakes a year. 
by the age of 15, 16. Wow. And I did that for the next three, four years at school. So I was, I was very involved in snakes without even like knowing that I was out herping. And yes. it was just kind of what I did. But then again, that's like totally different to finding them in yep. their environment. Totally. It's a lot easier finding a snake that's coming cheat. to someone. It's an easy cheat, else. yeah. Exactly. It's like they, you know they're going to be warm and comfy. It's like if you, if you want to actively herp an area you know you're going to go back to, a lot of people do it in the States. You just lay out boards. Yeah. Lay out boards and you lay out a and couple of things and then it. you flip stuff because you know the snakes want a warm, cozy place to sit under. Otherwise, you're literally looking for the proverbial needle in the haystack. You know, you, there's grass everywhere and you want to try and look through. It's impossible. Because that's what they were designed to do, yeah. to stay away yeah. from the predators. 100%. And we are yeah. a predator. Yeah. I, re- I remember going up to the Timbavati one time and we had this incredible guide called Given. And he would go like this at night. We're driving like 60 k's an hour on dirt roads in the landy. And he's shining, shining like this. Like the, you can't even see what he's shining at because yeah. the torch is just going back and forth. And he's like, stop. So you stop. Oh, there. 40 meters away, there's a chameleon there. You're like, where? Where? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 40 meters yeah. away, there's a chameleon. He spots it at night, yeah. but with shining a torch like, like a madman yeah, through yeah. the bushes and then you go up you walk close and like wow yeah. system to the madness it's like <laughs> exactly. he knows what he's doing dude yeah, yeah. shanghai yeah, yeah, cool. yeah. trackers yeah. like that yeah, yeah incredible yeah very cool local knowledge is always the best i mean if you if you get to an area locals will always speak to them and they ask them have you seen this snake no 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 i haven't seen this one but we've seen that one and they straight away will tell you you'll know if there's a pocket like when we were looking for worthing tony now Certain areas the guys were busy working in, they said they'd never seen the snake. We went 10, 15 kilometers to the other side, another ridge line on another prop, edge of property of, the, of an, a different farm, and they said they saw them regularly. So just because of a slight change in area, these guys were seeing Bitters Worthing Tony and the other guys weren't. Wow. So is Worthing Tony like endangered or vulnerable species? Or yes. Uh, I what's mean, it classified as? There's, there's three endemic species to Kenya, which were high on my target list to go and see. Um, the one is Montatheris Hindi, the Montane Viper, which is still quite stable in terms of they live up in the moorlands of uh, Mount Kenya. Okay. But I think the nearest thing or biggest threat right now, weirdly enough, they're not actually kept in captivity. No one wants them, even yeah. though that's the super rare kind of very unique species of snake wait till one person gets it then everybody else is i didn't say anything guys don't go looking for them um, <laughs> <laughs> exactly don't <laughs> and then there's uh, the other two which is the mount kenya bush viper um or ashes bush viper uh, atheris dysyxi they're being heavily hit with the poaching poaching and uh, deforestation is a very big issue for those snakes they only got elevated so the current field guide for east african reptiles is they're unclassified but just after that got published, they got moved up to CITES too. Oh, wow. So they are being protected now at the moment. And there's not a lot of areas where uh, they still exist. And the southern, um, southern forests of uh, Mount Kenya, and then a couple little fragmented patches east of Mount Kenya. Um, but a couple groups have gone recently. Actually, two guys that were with us, uh, Robin and Sam Vesey. Uh, they went on a trip just before we arrived to go look for the snake. And they met up with a couple of people like, yeah, we want to go look for Mount Kenya bush viper. They're like, yeah, 100%, we can go find them. We actually, we poach them. If we find the snake, we're going to keep it. Very openly talking, like they're very proud to be poaching the snake. So very bitter and weird experience. They really actually didn't like the experience and actually left. Uh, a previous group as well, a French group, also went through about a couple of months, I think it was the beginning of the year. 
uh, to go look for Mount Kenya bush viper and same situation. They pretty much were almost working alongside poachers to be able to try and see the snake in the wild. And they were still kind of saying, oh, we're going to keep the snake if we find it. So really, really tough. I mean, it's again down to the pet trade demand for these incredibly beautiful snakes, probably one of the most beautiful snakes yeah. in the Arthurus genus. Um, and it was the same again when um, Matilda got split from Ceratophora and it's the new bigger species of this horned kind of viper. Yeah. The demand went through the roof. So these poor species of snake, population loss or habitat destruction for deforestation as well as pet collection. I mean, these snakes, if they don't get much help in the next couple of years, they're going to go extinct in the wild. And that's sad because people keep bringing them in because also, like with those species, not much is known on how to care for them not or anything all. like that. It's not basically trial and error, which is sad because you can find out a lot if you go to their habitat, habitat. where they come yeah. from. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like a species like Hespida. Hespida, the hairy bush viper, probably the holy grail yes. if you speak to people who keep Arthurus or bush vipers. Extraordinarily difficult snake to keep alive. There's, yeah. I think, one report of someone who's managed to keep them alive. The rest all just die. Yeah. We're missing so many different like, climatic changes or diet preferences or kind of very small nuances in the snake's biology that we can't pinpoint. And we keep importing them and they just keep dying. People yes. keep them alive for six months and they die. It's like, why are we still importing them? Just exactly. leave them in the wild. Yes. And <laughs> if you have to do something about that, do like a full-on research paper. Yeah. Find out how they're living in the wild. Go, go find one in the wild. Follow it for two weeks. Yeah. Track it. Yeah. Live in the bush with it. Yeah. See what the climate is. Take yeah. all the readings and that. And then maybe you'll be able to keep it alive in captivity. Yeah. Because yeah. we can't just... There's not an endless supply of no. wild animals no. out there. Why, why do you think Bittus nasicornis, your rhino viper... They were everywhere a few years ago, yeah. and then now they know where. Yeah. It's very difficult to get, and most of the places have closed imports, which is good because yeah, yeah. you can't keep poaching them, but that also rises the poaching level. Yeah, rises the poaching level, and then it's also you know different localities. I mean, I was with um, two guys now in Kenya, and their knowledge of these species, Arthurus and Bittus, is literally through the roof. I mean, I had conversations with them two, three hours at a time, about, like I was saying, the small nuances on, on changes in climatic conditions. You know, like we, we spoke about it before the podcast about kind of getting an idea of how to keep rhinos in captivity. And, I mean, there's nighttime drops in, in Kakamega. Let's say the Kakamega, which is your, your Kenyan population. The nighttime drops in that forest is down to 12 degrees at night. Yeah. No one in, in captivity will drop their rhinos down to 12 degrees at night. People would be too scared for that. Then your, your Ugandan population, far happier with a more, a more heated environment, a lot more humid environment. And then your West African is, again, a different... It's almost like different animals that you've got to treat yes. in different ways. And if you don't know where your snake is coming from and you've just bought it as a wild import, you've got no clue. Yeah. Yeah. And that makes it very, very difficult to even try yeah. because it's not like a trial and error thing if you have an error, the animal can die and That's you might it. not be able to get no. ever again. No. No. So, it's like you said, we, we used to have a lot of rhino vipers coming through the expos here. Yes. And now since the restrictions, no one's managed to breed them. Yeah, no. I, I know of one guy who has a rhino viper that he's kept for over 10 years. Okay. And how he's done it? 
is exactly how you're talking. Okay. Letting it have the nice nighttime drops. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Has a breeze. Humidity isn't wet, wet. People yeah. think rainforest, so they think wet. Yeah. No. no. Have you ever herped out in yeah. a rainforest? Yeah. It It's humid, but there's always that breeze. Yeah. And then there's different levels the soil ecology has a big thing to do with it as well it's got a nice amount of drainage yet it keeps the humidity and then there's the leaf litter it's very very complex and then in the shade it's always freezing but the sun is like boiling it's and these snakes know how to use their environment in the perfect way you know because that's what they adapted for it's incredible incredible i mean to see these snakes it's in the wild it's there's nothing better really nothing better no, there's not. But it's it's very difficult to like find stuff. I was just out now also on a herping trip mm. while you just got back and <clears throat> finding stuff you walk for hours hours searching for stuff and generally you won't see anything. Mm. You won't see your target species no matter how much good intel you have of where they were last seen or yeah. anything like that. It's yeah. sometimes it just comes down to things happen when they happen and it seems like if you're a reptile person looking for snakes, you're not going to find them. <laughs> it's so true. You see the people who get the most ridiculous observations, like the Mozambique spitting cobra who was trying to chew on that um, the large plated lizard or something on yeah. the road the other day. It's always people who don't look <laughs> out for snakes. You see the most male mamba combat. Oh, there's some mambas in my back garden. They're busy breeding. No, they're not breeding. They're fighting. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah. And all the herpers pull in and then they're gone already by the time you get there. Yeah, and we don't get to see all those amazing <laughs> yeah, sightings. Yeah, yeah. Or that snouty trying to eat that rock monitor. Yeah, jeez. Oh. Yeah. And then that, that wormslung going for the chameleon. There's yes. so many yeah. cool sightings. But what's nice is pretty much everyone has a phone in their hand yeah. and records it. So it's we still a, get to see it. For databasing, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. For If you want to submit your stuff, you can submit it to like iNaturalist also and help study these animals just by what you've seen alone. Yeah. But it's it's strange how us herpers don't always get the great experiences, yeah. even though we like <laughs> spend our lifetime trying exactly. to get them. Yeah. And then that brings it back, you know, right time, right place with a lot of luck. <laughs> exactly that's yeah, that's yeah. what it boils down to yeah. you just got back from kenya mm. what were the other main species that you were looking for you said the green mambas the um atheris and the worthing tony yeah so yeah that was so we went to three to kenya i'm often working alongside living zoology uh, living zoology are an incredible youtube channel they've really become kind of the forerunners of natural history documentation of snakes and reptiles specifically snakes and uh, they had a certain target species list. I mean, obviously, we try to see as many snake species <laughs> yes. as possible. Um, but yeah, our main target, we started off on the coastline in Watamu, uh, collaborating with Bioken, or now to be known as East African Venom Supply. Oh, wow. Yeah, they're busy rebranding and moving away from the Bioken name and to kind of really focus on what they're doing. And um, we were there to try and find green mambas, as well as any black mamba callouts. They've got ashes, spitting cobras there as well as well as all your green snakes, speckled green snakes. Um, you've got your batters bees. And I mean, we ended up, this is an incredible story. We went out herping actively and uh, somehow Machia and Ferry, we, they're busy looking inside like a squirrel hole, had a little bit of fluff and whatnot. And I think it was our third day out herping uh, for green mambas. And Ferry pokes his little tiny hook stick inside the squirrel hole to see what's maybe in there. And out pops out an Usambara vine snake, literally just fall out the hole. Like, what on earth is an Usambara vine snake doing sleeping in a squirrel hole? 
So a lot of species that you think you expect to see, you don't expect to see. And then the ones you don't expect to see, I mean, seeing a vine snake out herping is like, Ferry in his lifetime of 20 years there has seen 10 individuals in the wild. And we got to see one on day three by pure chance. So we ended up knocking off a lot of cool species in Watamu. Um, we ended up, uh, which, which montane egg eater that we worked with. No, that was other side. So the East African egg eater we worked with. Uh, red beaked snake. We got a rescue call on a red beaked snake. Black mamba, a little bit more in, inwards towards uh, Tsavo again. So I think in Watami, we had a really good hotspot of lots of different species. Then it was heading over to Kakamega Forest, which is the last patch of forest in um, primary forest in Kenya. And that was for rhino vipers and gaboons, of which we didn't find. But we did end up finding a yellow forest, a yellow forest snake, which was probably the second or third record for that area ever. Is that the polymon you're... No, that's okay. not the polymon. You're going to go to that. I'm that's not stoked. the polymon, okay. yeah. So that was actually... On the same in the same area in Kakamega as well. Okay. Um, we kind of got we went to the one area we stayed there for the first night and that was our first night out herping. We kind of just went before we'd ever like uh, touched base with our guide. We, me and Mache couldn't wait, so we went out for kind of like ninja <laughs> night herp that evening. We found the yellow forest snake, which is a Homonotus modestus. Um, very very rare species of snake. Very few records. So that was an incredible find. And then you get we, lots of video footage. Yeah, 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 yeah. Video <laughs> footage, scale counts, headshots, the whole nine yards. Nice. And then uh, we met up with our guide the next day. We went to Rondo Retreat. So if any one of you guys want to head through to Kakamega Forest, Rondo Retreat is absolutely incredible. Right in the middle of the forest, you've got access to all the trails from there and some amazing guides there as well who are very willing to show you around and have deep knowledge from the butterflies, birds, arthropods, even to, into reptiles and amphibians. And I think it was on our first walk, he'd given us the introduction and everything. Cool, we've got this and this and this and so many species. And after about half an hour, he literally just, I wasn't there, I was at the back of kind of lingering back. And he was with Mache and uh, Robin up front. And the guy literally kind of was like, I'm just going to walk in here. And he literally walks five meters off the path, rustles through some feathers, uh, some, some like leaf litter. And there's this tiny little centipede eater that we thought at the time. We're like, oh my gosh, centipede eater, amazing. As far as centipede eater, we pull it out. We all still 100% convinced the centipede eater. Um, so we bag the snake. We can't unfortunately film it at that time. So we bag the snake and then continue with our herp. And we come back after the herping session and we identify and we look at the snake and we're like, it's a polymon. But now the three species, there's a Christie's polymon, which occurs in Kakamega Forest. But it's a completely black, uniform black snake and quite thick set snake. And the other three, which is your fawn-headed, your yellow-collared, and your Gabon snake eaters, are all found like Western Uganda. So it's maybe 3,000, 2,000, 3,000 kilometers away from the nearest record of the species of snake. Wow. So we also, again, did ventral scale pictures and all that none, all that stuff, took headshots, etc. I did an amazing video on it as well, which I'll hopefully edit soon. I've got too much editing to do. <laughs> do that one first, please. I've got to check it out soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'll try and do the more pertinent ones a little bit sooner rather than later. But yeah, I mean, potentially a first record of that snake in that area, if not a new species. Wow. Um, but so it's not the species that occurs there <clears throat> and just a young individual that goes through a Onto genetic change. color change. So it's definitely not a Christie snake eater. We could check straight away. We even contacted Stephen Sprawls and he confirmed it definitely was a Christie snake eater um, so it's one of the other three species and again like or a said, new one or a new one or a subspecies or I mean if you if you read into the guide uh, a lot of people actually consider the polymon which is broken up into multiple different species from mostly central 
Central Africa towards West Africa as one very, very um, uh, variable species instead of it being multiple different species. So it's very tough to kind of, okay, cool, other ones in Gabon, just the, does the next stripe change? Is the Colaris, which has like, this is one species where it's not like a collar, it's more of a line that runs down its head. The one that we had kind of had a Batman mask kind of vibe going on. So, and again, it's never ever been seen in Kakamega Forest. Never been seen, one of these snakes has never been seen in Kenya, full stop. So wow. to, to try and ascertain as to what species it is, et cetera, is very, very difficult. I'm not... Uh, a trained like a professional herpetologist i'm an avid herper i'm surrounded with people who are herpetologists who have a lot of knowledge and we were all stumped for a good week and we still are we still need to do the ventral scale counts and all that sort of stuff to be able to ascertain if it's a new species or what it might be what was that feeling like knowing that it might be like a world's first or a it's new incredible. species yeah oh, it's an incredible feeling it's really like it's something special to it's also like you know, you feel at the time it was the same with uh, the yellow forest snake, uh, the homonotus, and then also the snake eater. You've got Maciej Doliné and living zoology, who he's got his, he's busy completing his PhD um, in herpetology. His knowledge of snakes and reptiles around the world is really in, is incredible. So I learned a hell of a lot from him. And when you have people like that stumped in the field looking at a snake and they're like, I'm not sure what it is. At, at, one, at one point you're like, you feel, okay, he doesn't know his stuff. But at the second point, which is the bigger one, it's like, this is incredible that we can find something that you've got six herpers standing around who are completely unsure of what species of snake it is. That's so insane. it's like a real moment of elation where you get back to the lodge and you're just like internet Googling, paging through the book and doing characteristic checks. And you're like, no, it can't be this, but it can't be this, but it's impossible that it's this because these only occur in Uganda and you're like, what's going on here? Oh, that that so must be insane. Yeah, it's a really cool process to go through and hopefully we'll get some cool news in the near future about doing some scale counts and stuff on these snakes. Well, you definitely got to keep us posted. Yeah, we will. And if, if you keep us posted, where can people check that out? Okay, cool. So um, obviously Living Zoology, uh, they do a lot of the natural history kind of side of things. So they'll definitely be posting stuff on that quite soon. Um, as well as my channel at Matt Van Gier. I'm also on Facebook and Instagram and I'm a little bit more of a kind of explanatory. My kind of goal is to form as many species in their natural habitats as possible and divulge as much information. Uh, living zoology are very much purely natural history documentation, uh, which is really amazing. They really give all the, gl all the glory to, to the, the species snakes. and the yeah. snakes itself and really showing this, that those snakes in their natural habitats, which is what I do as well, except I kind of add myself into the picture. Okay, uh, yeah, yeah. kind of so, like myself too. Yeah, I had a little bit of a personality to it. And um, yeah, I want to educate and teach people as much as I can about every snake that occurs in their country or whatever the case might be. So that's kind of my goal right now is, yeah, film. I mean, again, it's, it's a pure passion thing for anything else. It's my biggest hobby in the world. Biggest passion is to firstly just get to see these snakes in the wild. Secondly, I'm a filmmaker, so it's kind of a works super well that I can film the snakes as well and get and document them as nicely as possible and then kind of share all of that with the world. That's and incredible. Yeah, show people how cool and beautiful and amazing snakes can be. Yeah, because they <laughs> are all that and more. Yeah, exactly, exactly. What, what's like one of the biggest herping memories that sticks out for you? Because you've traveled <laughs> the world herping also. Yeah, yeah. So, well, I mean, it was actually, I started, like I said, I've always kind of been a herper without allocating myself as the title as a herper. Yes. Until the point where it was, I think, 2018, um, Living Zoology put out a post. Hey, guys, we've got an extra spot. We're going to Uganda to look for these snakes. I was like, me, me, me. I, I also responded, <laughs> but I was like, 
No, and I don't have cash at that moment. Yeah, and I made it happen, and we ended up actually going do a purely herping environment, like herping trip. You know, as always, if I'm in Mozambique and I'm on a family holiday and there's a snake, I'm there catching the snake and kind of showing people and then release the snake. And this is where my kind of documentation of my whole experience about herping out in the wild and seeing these animals out in the wild and the reward of really seeing these snakes out in the wild and changing people's mindsets, especially locals. You know, we've, we've got some peeps in Uganda that have completely done a 180 or 360 degree turn in terms of how they used to look at snakes in the forest as a kind of commodity to not actually falling in love with them and completely changing and wanting to do snake safaris and stuff like that. So Incredible. Super, super cool. So I would say some big highlights have definitely always been with living zoology. Um, finding Schneider eye in the dunes. Ooh, but it's Schneider eye. It's one of the dwarf One of dwarf the dwarf adders. adders. And um, I mean, it was, you know, you can track them through the sand, which is always... It's in fact the world's smallest... Smallest snakes. Viper, yeah, smallest, yeah. smallest viper in the world or adder in the world. And... You know, you can track these things through the sand, etc. like a lot of your, like, serastes and your sandwiders and things around the world. So you've got a little, like, visual cues. Yes. But when you start seeing tracks everywhere and you follow them to nothing for a longer period of time, it gets very infuriating. Yeah. And most people would think that, like, you would have them shuffle in the first five centimeters. You know, if they're hunting, they would literally be on the surface, their head's still kind of sticking out. And we followed this one track, and it just disappeared. And we're like, no, nah, this, this is impossible. This is a super fresh track. This snake is here. And we start digging. No gloves. I know, my bad. <laughs> <laughs> and we start digging. And now we're five centimeters, 10 centimeters, still nothing. And then my chair tells me, he's like, dude, you should probably, you're doing this with your bare hands and you're probably already too deep. And by the time we got to around 30 centimeters deep, my last scoop, as he says, you should probably be wearing gloves. My last scoop, out comes this flippin' Schneider eye, 30 centimeters deep under the dune. Wow, yeah. I didn't know they could Completely bury themselves Normally we thought deep. like when we were initially doing it, we would take like our hook stick or whatever and very gently rake it over the five, 10 centimeters, the first top layer. This thing was deep. Wow. This thing was really deep. It was at That's least 20, 30 centimeters under the, under, under the sand. And when that snake popped out, man, jeez. Two herpers hugging each other very, very hard, man. <laughs> the, the, the bromance is like The real. bromance got strong, dude. It was incredible to, yeah. to have that moment of like finding the snake you've been looking for like maybe two days now. And oh, you find incredible. this little snake. Um, and it happens often. Tears enough, of joy. Man. Big tears of joy. Oh, yeah. Nice. And what else was it? I mean, yeah, there's, too, there's almost too many to name. Yeah, it, it's almost like because this becomes like a normal thing. Yeah part of your day in and day out that there's there's not that many things that stand out because everything is just so amazing and so many things happen like yeah. a normal day in my life is probably the craziest day in somebody else's life sure. that type of thing sure. so yeah. it it is what it is yeah yeah i mean and then i have to i have to go to the albanica trip so we went to, to, to do a trip for Enonata and albanica and we found one Enonata literally on the last evening before we were meant to leave. So we find that in on art in the morning, take photos, film, and then go and release the snake. Um, my mate went to go get the car ready and packed, and I go to the original release location, which is super important for some of these dwarf species, yeah. to release almost at the exact like site of, of where you find the snake. So I go what, back to sorry, the exact before site. Before you go on there, mm. what do you do to like release them in the sp same spot? Do you have like a GPS tracker? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, as we find the snake, we have a Google Google Maps marker. We okay. mark a marker, and then you take it almost back to the exact same rock. Most okay. of the your slowest slower moving species, adders and things like that, 
it's less important with your lapids, supposedly, but uh, there's quite a few papers out stating that your, your vipers, like Raglis pit vipers for Indonesia, uh, your dwarf adders from South Africa, and then your maybe rattlesnakes and certain things that have dens and areas that they kind of occupy quite regularly, if you move them a far enough distance away from their little home ranges or their home patches, they can get quite stressed out trying to get back home. Okay. And so releasing them at the exact like catch site is super important. So I went back to the same site, and as I took last couple picks, I released it under a nice big slab, and I look around the other side of the slab, and there's another Inonata just sitting there basking in situ. I'm right like, by this. where you released the other Inonata. So I literally oh. I'm look back under, and you guys will see this in the video as when I, when I finally edit it. Um, I'm like, this can't be the same snake because the snake I was busy with was still quite huffy puffy, and this snake was lying perfectly in situ. I lift the rock, and there's two Inonatas sitting under the rock. It was literally wow. like a mind-blowing moment, and I was all by myself because the other herb buddy was down busy getting the car ready. So I was literally up there kind of doing a little dance by myself. (laughs) (laughs) And I had no time to film the snakes. So I took a couple photos and let them be. I put them under separate rocks. But um, yeah, incredible moments. And then to go on to... And just so people know, that's not an easy snake to find. It's an endangered species or is it critically endangered? So I would would put it as endangered species after kind of... If we then... We will do the comparison to the Albany adder after this. Is um, Inonata or the Plain Mountain adder... Um, they live in a very remote region of the world, yeah. of South Africa. There's very few people. Um, I think poaching would probably be their only kind of pressure at the moment. So there's a couple livestock things happening, but that's sheep farmers where sheep are moving through the land and things like that. But if you look at the mountain range, it goes on and on and on and on forever. And the amount of rocks there, I mean, we must have flipped maybe 1,500, 2,000 rocks between the two yeah. of us in like two days. Um, there's so much habitat for those animals. So it's endangered, but it's data deficient. There's not yeah. enough research done on the animal to actually ascertain population. They're very tough to find. They live really high up in the, in the kind of very um, alpine areas, pretty much. So um, finding those snakes, it's, it's not easy, but I don't think it's too hard either if you really put in the hours. Yeah. Um, Says you flipped 2,000 rocks. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's hard going. Yeah, okay, I'll take it back. It's really not easy to find these snakes. It's, you've got to really put in the mind. And still, in two days, that's, that's still getting lucky. Yes. Because I know peeps who've gone to look for them and not find them three, four trips in a row. Yeah. So I guess it's maybe just good juju because uh, <laughs> I've got positive intentions out there where some guys maybe don't have the best intentions with going out there and collecting these animals. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. So, and then to, two days later to arriving um, in Port Elizabeth area to go look for Albanica. And geez, we looked, we, we, we got information about different locations and different places to go. And there's a lot of restricted land areas. And we walked a lot. I mean, in the, in the first five, six days, I think we walked an average. Our biggest day was 68 kilometers. So I think just an average or let's call it ballpark, 400 Ks in the, like six days of walking. And it's, it's not like there's trails or anything. No. You make your own trails. You make so. your own trails and everything out there is out to scratch you. And, and there's tiny little holes. And then you start thinking there's reports of them going down because it's limestone areas. So yes. there's a lot of porous areas, a lot of cavities and rocks and cracks and things like that. And after six days of looking, we're like, okay, that's it. We're done. We're ready to go home. We get back to our accommodation, ready to check out. And then BioNerds. BioNerds is an incredible um, organization, NGO, that work with 
Um, with tortoises, with, hey. with tortoises, but also endangered fauna and flora all over. They've actually the one guys or one team that are busy doing active uh, work in that area to raise awareness with our different farm owners about the species and protecting it and not allowing people to come potentially future collect, etc. And they arrived that day and we were leaving that evening and they went for an evening road cruise and found one their first road cruise. No, So no. me and my mate were like, no, this is too much. We've just put in six days. We are extending by a day and we're going to go out. We road cruised, didn't find anything and then uh, decided to take another approach. I'm not going to give too much details away, but... We did a, uh, did a different approach, and we ended up finding four individuals in the space four. of 12 hours. Wow, and that is a critically endangered That's species. a critically endangered animal with probably, they, they say there's around 20 sightings, but that would be scientific sightings. So obviously of people actively going out to look for the snake and finding them. So since I think 2007, they were considered extinct. And then, no, 2007, no, 1997, they were considered extinct. By 1997, they were re-found by bionerds and a couple people. And since then, I think there's been between 15 to 20 scientific sightings. And then in our trip, we found four. So that's um, a pretty pretty good number <laughs> <That's> <laughs> in insane. the grand scheme of things. After like six days. Yeah, yeah. so I mean, that will also probably be a world first uh, 4K footage of that species of snake and really well documented that snake. So I've got you a, say you an got episode. it in 4K. <laughs> <Yeah>. Nice. <laughs> All in 4K and... Uh, yeah, we shot that snake, those four, those four individuals. Shot as in filmed, guys, yes, just yeah, by yeah. the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Shoot, shoot animals with your camera, not with guns. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I, I know because, what's his name? Um, a lot of the older herpers would actually take a tutu out and shoot the animals because they can't catch them just so they can get yeah, yeah, yeah. scale counts and that. You, we don't do that in this no, generation. No, no. I mean, even still now, I mean, there was a lot of validity to when we found the polymon, the snake eater, which would have been a first record for the area. Yeah, they want you to kill it. Old herpetologists, old regime would have definitely... I mean, and it probably would have been valid now still to, because then we would have actually, excuse me, to be able to ascertain exactly what it is with a genetic study. But I can't bring myself to do no, that. No, exactly. I we can't we bring got myself. too much of a heart for the animal. Yeah, Even um, though it might be good for the scientific literature yeah. in the future. You know what? If you want to be, and if there is, if there is any people out there that are keen enough to be able to ascertain what it was, go to Kakamega, put a research group together, get some funding, and make it happen. Mm-hmm. And go take with because we didn't have ethanol, we didn't have uh, scientific grade ethanol, we didn't have ways and means to be able to actually transport the snake. It would have been very MacGyver quick sticks, and then just then now the genetic material, the also. genetic material gets ruined by the time it gets to the lab, and then no you've reason. killed the snake for no reason. Yeah. So if you know if it happens by happenstance, I think let the snake go. If you're there to do active research and to actually figure it out, then it's a different story. Yes. But uh, we were we were there to photograph and document, and yeah. not to <laughs> <laughs> not, not, not to, to remove them from the wild. You know, found in the wild, left in the wild. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's the way. Just shoot them with shoot, shoot them, them in four K. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> I wish it was six K, and they would have lasted a little bit longer. But eight K now. <laughs> Red dragon yeah, or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. This this was an incredible episode and I definitely think we're going to have to do quite a few more in cool. the future because good. you've got some insane hoping stories. Yeah. And then in the future, I'm going to definitely come, come join with. us. Yeah. yeah. 100%. That's going to be lacquer. That sounds good. So you've already stated where everybody can follow you, right? Yeah. So Matt Van Geo, M-A-T-V-A-N-G-E-O. And yeah, pretty much on all socials, YouTube, Instagram and Facebook. 
um, come give me a follow. I've got plenty of good stuff coming up. I've just been a lazy editor, you know, work and life gets busy. Yeah, because so. he's a filmmaker. He likes the camera, not <laughs> there the editing. There we go, you know, Same so getting over my editing block um, has been a thing, but please do bear with me. There's some good content coming and uh, I will appreciate any kind of viewership subscribers. You know, hit that like button, hit that subscribe button. Yeah. And remember to stand for what we stand on. Yeah. And learn, explore, inspire and live it. Cheers, guys. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you, Matt. Cheers, bro. Cheers. It's been a that pleasure. Was that was awesome.